this physical body changes for the worse over time in some ways based on things that happen to us and those changes tend to endure and if we want to change this body for the better if we want to change circuitry in the brain for the better we need to engage that in a really active way we need to actually respect the physicality of this body that is the basis of the life that we have welcome to the trauma sensitive mindfulness podcast I'm David Trelevin, and this is a podcast that explores the intersection of mindfulness, meditation, and traumatic stress. My guest this episode is Rick Hansen. Rick is a psychologist, a New York Times bestselling author, and he's also a senior fellow of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley. His books include Buddha's Brain, Hardwiring Happiness, Resilient, and then most recently, Neurodharma. He's been an invited speaker at NASA, Oxford, Harvard, and he's also served on the board of the Spirit Rock Meditation Center in Woodacre, California. In his teaching and work, Rick focuses on what contemporary neuroscience can teach us about cultivating inner strength, and specifically how this relates to contemplative practice. In our conversation, we talk about what resilience means and its connection to mindfulness, the distinction between working with and being with when it comes to meditation, and also the practices that Rick depends on in his life to cope well with stress and adversity. We recorded this interview right before COVID-19 had really intensified here in the US, so we don't specifically get into the pandemic, and I also feel like the territory we cover is very applicable to our current situation. Rick's a, a natural teacher, and I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you do as well. So without further ado, here's Rick Hansen. I'm here with Rick Hansen. Rick, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. David, honestly, talking with you is one of my favorite things, generally, <laughs> and also definitely in terms of interviews I do and so on. So I'm, I'm already really happy that we're doing this. It's an honor to be here. and Thank you. And I really also want to shout out your groundbreaking work that has mm -hmm. really shifted the field to bring trauma sensitivity, trauma grounded awareness into the broad popular space now of mindfulness practice. Mm. And you've really made a huge contribution there. So I'm honored to have this chance to be on your podcast. Mm. Thanks, Rick. I appreciate that. Well, a lot of people will know your, um, your work. And for those that don't, I'm wondering if you could just start with um, a little bit about how we got here to 2020 and you know you've written a number of books now that i will have introed but uh, i know you had an interest in the human potential movement you've been practicing for a long time so mm -hmm. what would you want um, listeners to know about uh, kind of your path to this most recent book oh the really short version uh begins when i was a really little kid and i had just this ongoing poignant so you know background sense that was really in my experience kind of in the wallpaper of my experience mm -hmm. as a two-year-old as a three-year-old dating into my earliest memories that there's just so much unnecessary suffering and i didn't know why it was or what to do about it but i knew that it was and that i cared about it and included for myself as well as for the the grown-ups and kids around me. So that kind of, I would say, set me on my journey, which then went through a lot of zigs and zags. You know, I started in college in 1969, right in the full flood of the human potential movement. Right. A lot of cool, wild and crazy stuff through the 70s. And then I got uh, my grad school and clinical training in the 80s. And then in the 90s, 
I was deeply interested in um, the transition to parenthood. Three in four women, let's say in America, uh, will have a child. Mm -hmm. And that event is really changing typically for a woman and, and typically for, let's say, her partner, commonly a man, not always. And so I got interested in the whole territory of maternal stress and depletion, which then led to my first book coming out, Mother Nurture, in 2002, mm. six months after 9-11, after America was wow. attacked by al-Qaeda. So there wasn't much space uh, in the consciousness for a book about the long-term health and body-mind relationships of, of a woman with children. Uh, so that was that phase. And then I would say after about a 10-year focus in the 90s on that whole topic territory, which is extremely rich, if we want to change mm. the course of human history in one generation, uh, make the welfare of mothers the number one public policy priority. Mm -hmm. And that would change everything, change everything mm. forever, I think. Uh, in any case, I had always also, or at least since I became a young adult, been very interested in deep practice, uh, both uh, in the human potential movement initially and then spreading into contemplative practice, particularly the one, the tradition I know best, which is Buddhism. So that also runs through this. And I've been trained in different traditions and I've also been trained in um, and explored paths outside of Buddhism, ones that are more sort of explicitly transcendentalist, you know, mm -hmm. theistic, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, oriented toward the, the divine. Uh, and then that all led me, starting in the mid-2000s, early 2000s, to really explore the intersection of clinical psychology. I, I got a PhD and a psychologist license along the way. Clinical psychology intersecting with brain science mm -hmm. and intersecting with contemplative wisdom. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine three circles, psychology, brain science, contemplative wisdom, where those circles intersect is so fertile and yeah. rich yeah. with cool, yeah, really cool ideas. And because I'm a practical guy, I'm a methods guy, um, really useful tools for helping ourselves, you know, kind of move out of depression and anxiety and trauma, as well as stabilize everyday resilient well being. And then on that basis, woof really launch yeah. into the upper reaches of human potential, self-actualization, yeah. peak experiences, awakening, even enlightenment itself. So that that's that. And that led then to Buddhist Brain, several other books that came after it. And my most recent book, which you're kind enough to uh, talk with me about today, Neurodharma, which the subtitle describes it well, I think. Neurodharma, New Science, Ancient Wisdom, and Seven Practices of the Highest Happiness. Mm. And so that's kind of where I'm, I am today. I imagine that when I imagine that Venn diagram, I think that's what it's called when you imagine those three yeah. circles together, that my experience of your work is that I must have this image of a very vibrant color or the field of those three circles coming together can offer so much, both by way around trauma and mindfulness mm -hmm. and just all the practices in there. And you've been kind of teaching in there from different angles. And mm -hmm. I'm curious if you could say, given that you probably a lot of you and a number of people who will be listening will have come to practice and are offering mindfulness or, or guiding people having mm -hmm. had their own path around their own suffering you know, that came yeah. into this. And given that you started with, you know, being a young kid and, and then the interest that you've had, do you mind talking about what was the moment or was there a moment when you decided to start teaching? Because when I've been in your 
you know, a few times I've been in your presence when you're teaching, I have this sense of there's a real joy for you mm. in getting to talk about those this these three circles coming together. And mm. it also seems to be, a, it's a particular leadership thing to do, to take on, like, I'm not just doing this for myself. There's a we that you're practicing mm. with. And I'm curious if there was a choice moment for you of saying, I, I want to write, or I want to mm. guide people or lead people uh, along the way. That's such an interesting question. Well, up until I went to college, I would say I was a very shy, withdrawn, awkward, dorky, highly neurotic person. <laughs> and then when I That's landed honest. at UC- yeah, and then when I landed at UCLA, it's like the doors suddenly opened. I was outside of my family; nobody knew me there. And like I think a lot of people in that situation, uh, you could discover who you really were, kind of stepping out of the scripts that other people wrote you into yeah. you know, in high school yeah. and in your family and also the scripts that you wrote yourself into with other people. Suddenly it was quite fresh. And I, I, I think like a lot, a lot of people discovered that there were things inside me I wanted to express and share. So I was drawn quite quickly into student government and particularly the counseling aspects of that or the helping people aspects of that. So I started uh, at a hotline kind of level or at a dormitory rap group, we called them rap groups, mm-hmm. uh, back in the early 70s program, you know, at that level I was involved. So I was doing, I'd say, I think it was pretty organic for me to step into uh, kind of a teaching role. And then there was a moment when someone who was going to lead a personal growth workshop in a program I was involved with a year after I graduated from college that teacher got sick and couldn't teach the weekend oh, workshop, wow. 30 people in a mountain cabin, and they tapped me to step in and do it. Wow. I'd never done it before. Mm-hmm. But when I stepped in and did it, it was suddenly like I just had a natural feeling for playing the piano, and I just mm-hmm. had a natural feeling for a personal growth workshop. And mm-hmm. that was, and I was 21. <laughs> oh, wow. wow. <laughs> when that all opened up for me, and then the rest is history. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for answering that. Appreciate that. Yeah. So, you know, we're talking at a moment where maybe this could be a bridge into getting to talk about these um, um, seven different practices mm-hmm. of awakening. And we're talking right now uh, during this um, uh, global experience around uh, coronavirus and mm-hmm. now some more pressures here in California and really internationally. And it just feels like we're in a moment of significant pressure. And Mm -hmm. here we have this whole spectrum of, of stress. We can talk about trauma as well. And I'm wondering as a kind of an inroad into talking about these different practices of awakening, um, what are you, what are you depending on these days or what are the practices that you find um, helping you? If you want to start with a general, I mean, maybe we need to do a general framing to back Mm -hmm. up, but I, I am curious to hear what you see um, working right now for the community that you you teach and also yeah. what you're also needing in your own path and practice. Another deep question. So I find it is really helpful to think about broadly three domains of intervention. One is the environment around us, including other people. Second is our physical body. Third, in a broad sense, is our mind, which for me is a very inclusive word uh, that in which intellect is just a very small fraction. Mm-hmm. So they're all important and it's not either or. And in fact, they support each other that, for example, um, supporting civil society, the rule of law, you know, not having authoritarian rulers of one kind or another 
um, enables people to uh, feel better internally and to feel happier internally and to grow internally. On the other side of it, as people develop themselves internally, uh, they become more able to engage in skillful, external, societally directed action, including at the level of just the people they live with or work with. So mm-hmm. it all fits together. Mm-hmm. Inside that frame, my own uh, professional background is in terms of the mind, uh, informed by what we know about the mind-body connection. So that's where I'm going to speak, but it's not to leave out um, helping society and politics be better. Absolutely. Inside that context, it's useful, I think, to appreciate that many of the major teachers uh, historically, the Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad, uh, the ancient Hindu teachers, and then certainly the first people teachers in the indigenous world, uh, Judaism, the, the wisdom that's come through there, and other great traditions, those teachings, those more, those older teachings, if you will, occurred at times when many, many people were, were dealing with very terrible things. Mm. And if they could swap their environment, the, the context in which they lived in northern India 2,500 years ago, say, for the worst of the world today, I think most of them would make that swap in a minute. And so it's useful to appreciate that these deep wisdom teachings are very grounded in a clear-eyed look at the kind of suffering and the kind of pressures and the kind of worries and the kind of uh, health risks and so forth that we're grappling with today. Mm. And so in other words, these teachings are not uh, just for upper middle class yuppies in yoga camp. They are for real people in the trenches of everyday life. kind of think about what everyday life was like in northern india 2500 years ago yeah i think that's very important to appreciate so inside that context Mm. uh, as a psychologist it's very clear that what helps us cope with challenges whether it's coronavirus or current politics or global climate change or the jerk of a neighbor you've got living next door to you Mm -hmm. uh, or your ex-husband but you still have to raise children together or your nightmare of a boss, whatever it might be, or the pain in your back or old age, disease and death, you know, to deal with challenges, to cope with them and also to maintain well-being. While you deal with challenges, the key is to grow psychological resources inside mm-hmm. of various kinds, inner strengths like mindfulness, self-compassion, grit, executive function, secure attachment, the kinds of things that therapists work with every day. In other words, to deal with challenges, we need inner resources. So the inner resources that I draw upon and I try to develop, not just identify and use, which is where the field mainly focuses when it talks about psychological strengths, character strengths, for example, but how do we actually acquire them in the first place, right? How do we learn to be mindful as a trait, not just experience it in passing moments as a state. How do we actually do that? Mm-hmm. So the key resources I would say I particularly draw upon to deal with the current moment, being kind of intimate here with you and, and really honest, I take refuge in doing what I can and knowing what I'm that I'm doing when I can. That's one. Mm-hmm. Second, I try to find good company, community with others who allies who kind of see the world in similar ways, uh, have similar values, 
and we support each other. I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. Third, honestly, I try to have a sense of perspective that this moment in the course of human history is a small moment, not to diminish the current situation, but I've thought to myself recently that most humans in the last 10,000 years since agriculture came in and larger collections of people um, were able to form towns, cities, empires, most people have lived under the rule of authoritarian assholes. Yeah. That's a technical term. I hope I'm not <laughs> causing someone to put their hands over their ears. That's the truth of it. Kings, occasionally queens, warlords, you know, crazy people, bad people, just who could care less about the ordinary people. The 1% in the last 10,000 years, uh, the aristocrats, the nobles, and so forth, while everybody else was sort of a commoner or a serf or a slave. And they found a way to live in some way. And I don't say this at all to minimize the impact of the current you know, rise of authoritarianism and the prevalence of authoritarianism really around the world, uh, but to kind of realize, you know, we all just have to make our own way. And that's really an important thing. So I draw on that. And then ultimately, I, I honestly draw on my own practice and my, my sense of the... Uh, existent emptiness of all things, mm -hmm. all experiences, all material phenomena, and the underlying ground of awareness, certainly, um, within ordinary reality, and then in my own meta-cosmology, uh, the underlying ultimate ground of unconditionality, possibility, the unconditioned, and perhaps some kind of consciousness and benevolence that... Uh, is not entirely our own. This is, this is part of what I see you doing in this most recent book and also in your work generally is that there seems to be a pretty wide aperture of times. I mean, I appreciate you naming uh, what you just said about times to take refuge, times mm -hmm. to be with others, also times to really lean into your, maybe your more individual practice and, yeah. and that there's this wide spectrum that you can be working with. And just because you, I wanted to come back to something you said actually that gets to this really to the title around neurodharma and i have a question about that yeah. one of the dynamics or one of the questions that i'll sometimes get when having a conversation about mindfulness and trauma is that someone will say well what what do you think of the 2500 years of of practice that's been happening inside in this case the buddhist tradition you know what would be said about trauma and do you feel like you're just bringing a new a new piece to the table or is the trauma literature explaining what's already embedded inside of practice? And so I wanted to ask you about that in terms of neurodharma, whether, you know, how you see the relationship between contemporary neuroscience and then also this, you know, epic 26, 25, 2600 year old tradition around really a map, such deep map of the mind and of liberation. And do you feel like neuroscience is articulating what was already there is it bringing is the research and practices bringing new pieces to the table just curious how you see that that relationship and that venn diagram right so just to kind of flag it you named something that's very interesting which is in the deep traditions of let's say buddhism and i'm happy to talk about that in terms of other traditions too it's christianity judaism etc um what is useful in those traditions or what where do they explicitly speak to what are the stories about 
uh, trauma and the wisdom of the teacher about that. So that's a fantastically interesting question. Then there's this second question, this distinct question, which is really, uh, you know, what's the value add, really, bottom line for practice in knowing anything at all about how the body is making the mind sure. and the brain in particular, right? Mm -hmm. right? So um, maybe jump into the latter. Yeah, I would please. say first and foremost, I think that the teachings and traditions such as uh, you find in the contemplative traditions, Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, et cetera, et cetera. And also you find in terms of the secular mindfulness tradition and in uh, Western psychology in general, they are highly effective. They have been highly effective, including in Western psychology and psychotherapy, highly effective long before we knew very much at all about the brain. Right. So clearly we don't, Freud did not need the kind of current 100 years later detailed understanding of the brain to develop methods that actually relieve the suffering of many of the people he worked with, right. et cetera. Similarly, the Buddha himself, he didn't need an EEG or an MRI to be, in my view, awakened uh, and help many other people on the way. Mm. On the one hand, part one. Part two, could knowing something about how the body is making the mind uh, within ordinary reality inform our practice and enhance it and allow us to individualize it or accelerate it, especially for householders who need to engage practice in bits and bytes here and there, typically, uh, who don't have access to the kind of 24 seven, uh, you know, I think of it as stone polishing, tumbler grinding 24 hours a day, you know, these kind of cylinders. I did, I said, I saw this as a kid where you put in these rough pebbles and yeah, then right. months later you open up and they're amazingly beautiful because they've been slowly polished, you know, with the sand and water you threw into the, the tumbler that right. just kept grinding away for, for a month, right? We don't have access to that. So that's really the question for me. And my answer is absolutely. And that's the exploration in the Neurodharma book. What's useful that we can tap into uh, from the current neuroscience? And I think the usefulness of neuroscience applied to practice falls into four categories. And if you want, I'll just name them quickly. Sure. Okay. So first is motivating. Uh, for people, for better or worse, when you know that somehow your daily mindfulness, your, your self-compassion, your calling up feelings of gratitude, your movement into subtler and still ordinary and accessible states of consciousness and when you, in which you have a sense, let's say, as your, of your body as a whole right in the present moment, when you know that these practices are actually changing your brain in lasting ways mm -hmm. that are increasingly measurable, well, somehow it's more motivating. And that's a major benefit because motivation is really important to practice. Mm -hmm. You haven't learned anything new, but you're more motivated by understanding that you're actually changing your brain in durable ways, mm -hmm. first benefit. Second, we all have the same brain, more or less. In other words, we all have, as humans, human DNA, and the, in, which contains the build-out instructions for the human brain that we all share. And when you start looking at different practices and the terminology that's used in different traditions, and you start looking at that through the lens of the one brain we all share, this common framework, it's really clarifying. You start to realize that terminology that seems so different from, let's say, Tibetan Buddhism or Zen, 
is really pointing to the same underlying neural process. Or when you start talking with someone who's doing centering prayer in a, probably a Christian frame, or you start uh, reading about Sufism or listening to a Sufi teacher, and they're using really different language, but you start to understand, oh, that's what they're mobilizing. That, that's the physical process that their instructions or suggestions or metaphors are mobilizing inside the brains of people who are practicing in what they think are wildly different ways, Christianity, Buddhism, let's say, or, or Sufism, um, and yet they're fundamentally all doing the same thing. Mm. That's really useful. It creates a common framework for the disparate and sometimes very quarrelsome uh, religions in the world. Mm. That's useful. Mm. Third thing that's really, really useful, and you'll see this often, when you learn about the brain, you find yourself thinking, oh, I should do this practice. And then suddenly you realize, oh, I came across that teaching 15 years ago in this odd little snippet I read in some magazine somewhere. Somebody else came up with that suggestion because it worked, but now I understand why it works, and now I understand why it's a priority. Mm -hmm. So looking at practice through the lens of the, of the brain you know, narrowly and the, the body broadly and, and life altogether, nature altogether, um, um, very, very broadly. Looking at practice through that lens enables us to prioritize and uh, select out of the 10,000 tools in the psycho-spiritual warehouse, the ones that have the, the highest uh, you know, impact in general. And also, let's say, given my biological temperament, I'm a kind of, let's say, I'm not actually, but let's suppose I'm a sort of spirited, jumpy, ADHD kind of person. Uh, well, uh, I should focus on these particular psycho-spiritual tools because now I understand that in my basal ganglia, deep in the bowels of the brain, there's this little uh, detector that's always tracking the amount of stimuli that I'm getting. It's a kind of stimostat, unlike a thermostat. And if I'm not getting enough stimulation from my objects of meditation, like the sensations of breathing, which are you know, fairly boring, um, you know, I'm just going to have a wandering mind. And that's not my fault. It's not because I'm a bad yogi or a bad meditator. I need objects of meditation that are more stimulating. So I'm going to reach into the warehouse of psycho-spiritual tools and draw on practices that are more vigorous, more intensive. Uh, I'm going to do walking meditation. I'm going to bring yoga into it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to choose objects of meditation, let's say, like gratitude or compassion uh, that, are, that are just richer, you know, so they're going to occupy my attention mm -hmm. better. So that's the third benefit of looking at things through the brain, uh, enabling us to prioritize and then individualize tools that already exist in the psycho-spiritual warehouse. And then the um, fourth benefit is genuinely new value added by understanding the brain. And, and that happens, I think, in several areas. One is through insight. When you really understand that this moment of experience is the manifestation of very complex, arbitrary, mechanistic, biological processes at the cellular and molecular level, that leads to a deepening vipassana, a deepening insight into the transient nature of those underlying physical processes, their ownerlessness, right? There's no one who owns them. There's no one, there's no self who is 
directing those underlying physical biological processes. And this takes you into, as the Buddha taught, a very healthy and helpful experience of disenchantment and non-attachment and relaxation of the ordinary clinging to the sense of self. This, this insight that's, that's informed by an understanding of the underlying biology, for example. Also, sometimes when you understand how the hardware works, that suggests new methods uh, such as neurofeedback, for example. There are particular details of practices in my book, Neurodharma, that um, I think I've never come across before. And maybe somebody else has said them somewhere in some tradition, but I, you know, fairly widely schooled in this stuff. I've never run across it before. So that's an example in this fourth category of how knowing something about the brain is useful because it can suggest genuinely new insights um, that are liberating and also genuinely new practices. So one thing I'm hearing, and I'm making some connections here to trauma, would be the way that uh, contemporary neuroscience would actually both be, I love what you're saying here, that it's both giving us motivation for practice, given understanding mm -hmm. of practice, and then also sometimes common framework, new, new tools. Common framework. Yeah, that's the second one. Yep. And actually, I wanted to ask you a question about this, the common framework piece. Uh, where you had talked about, you know, there is a relatively similar brain structure that we're working with. What can we learn? What's, uh, what is applicable um, across a spectrum? And then in talking about trauma, and I know you've done some work here around this, of understanding that, you know, from right from a pre, a prenatal experience into young, early childhood, we will be having different experiences around stress and trauma. Uh, you know, based mm. on our social context and that, you know, now this research around epigenetics and what's happened, the adverse childhood experiences study, which is really looking at the impact of these adverse yeah. experiences. So in many ways, I can imagine that there's a universality and applicability around neuroscience. And then what I appreciate, and I've heard you speak to this, is that we also get to take into account the fact that there will be different, almost like a a different starting place for people based on these adverse experiences, whether they're traumatic or just a series of kind of smaller adverse experiences. Could you talk about how you see with that shared understanding around uh, neuroscience, how to account for these different starting places that we're in and the, the, the impacts that people experience, especially the younger folks? I think you're getting at, if I'm following you right, uh, natural innate variation in individuals as a starting point mm -hmm. and then life lands on them is that what you're getting at and what is the underlying basis for that natural variation we let's let's just just say in terms of vulnerability you know uh, initial vulnerability is that what i think that's the yeah, the question to me is like how to account for vulnerability it's this it's this constant tension point for any yeah. of us that are trying to for example in a in a very present moment way, this conversation around um, identity and the impact, especially around trauma, that that yeah. identity really matters when it comes to trauma, whether it's the specific targeting that someone will have based on race or gender. And at the same time, I think there is a universality that brain science can often bring in about impact on the amygdala, how we can work with that, best practices. So to me, it just feels like there's a, a tension point between a, a kind of shared understanding of the brain while also, as you're saying, these innate factors, how to attribute 
for um, certain innate factors. And then, you know, again, I'm thinking of that Venn diagram, like how to just work respectfully and in integrity in that middle circle um, around those two places. Is that making sense? Yeah, this is wonderful to talk about. As I feel my way into this topic, what strikes me is that there is innate diversity. In other words, there's innate diversity of temperament. Yes, right. In the deep complexity of the underlying machinery of the body, there's tremendous innate diversity in gene expressions that regulate serotonin activity that make some people more or less vulnerable to depressed mood, you know, similar things uh, elsewhere. There's wonderful research, actually, uh, both in terms of what um, is the basis for innate vulnerability to negative experiences. Mm -hmm. There's emerging development uh, around innate, let's call it vulnerability, or innate responsiveness yes. to positive experiences. Mm -hmm. And the strange term for that is called vantage sensitivity, if people want to look that up. Uh, because it's really interesting. In other words, well, naturally, some people seem to be particularly harmed by adversive experiences. Other people seem to be particularly helped by beneficial experiences. Right. And in some cases, they're the same people. In some cases, the, the sensitivity, let's say, that makes someone vulnerable to adverse experiences enables them to really get a lot from uh, having a baseball coach who's wonderfully nurturing. Uh, that they end up with, let's say, later on in life. On the other hand, there is some difference between what enables, what makes someone, let's say, particularly vulnerable to negative experiences or particularly responsive to positive experiences. So there is already innate variability right Absolutely. there. Then there's constructed variability, mm. there's, which has to do with socially constructed, or pardon me, let's call it that, constructed diversity, which has to do with socially developed uh, labeling around things like race, gender, uh, sexual orientation, social class, body status, you know, uh, size and so forth. And I think that's very helpful if I'm following you, Ryan. And then there's third, there's innate universality. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. We have innate diversity, we have constructed diversity, and we have innate universality. And all three of those interact to shape the outcomes in, in the course of a person's life. I really appreciate that framing, and I just, uh, I just uh, had the pleasure of being an uncle for the first time mm. um, this last year. And what you just said about the, the innate traits—I mean, I was just with this little baby, and I thought, "There's something there. There's some, mm -hmm. innate, there's some innate characteristics." And then what you're naming around the constructed diversity—I appreciate you naming that because I think a lot of people in the community listening here who are in leadership positions around mindfulness are trying to acknowledge or interested in the conversation about acknowledging the very real impacts around constructive diversity, that it's not just an idea that we will literally be shaped um, differently in the world based on uh, the different conditions that we are born into. And, yeah. but not to get so focused on that, that we can't come back again. Why the third one that you bring in here about an innate universality as well, that we get to come back to that. We, but not we all as a, have an, we all have two amygdalae, right? Two, we all have an amygdala, actually two of them, but yeah, exactly right. That's innate universality. We come back to a larger. Yeah. And I think that's, it's something that personally I'm longing for yeah. inside of work around trauma is that the, the, to focus in 
so intently on individual experiences and the ways that get shaped around oppression and identity, and then somehow coming back to a shared universal experience of humanity and what we all want in terms of what I I sense many of us want around not suffering, being safe, but not as a bypass, not to skip over the very real conversations I think happening right now around uh, difference and politics. So I appreciate that, that, that triad that you just named. Mm-hmm. There's one piece in your work that, uh, if I could bridge here, that I love how you talk about it and comes up often a lot around trauma-sensitive practice is this uh, duality or this, uh, I'll just say the split between um, being with and working with. Mm-hmm. We can develop uh, these skills around uh, practicing being with you fill in the blank, discomfort, you name that whole spectrum of stressful experiences we can have. And then, but that's not the end of the game here, that there's a whole other spectrum of which you've been really cultivating and working in around the the working with and being more actively, whether it's, you know, uh, working with our resilience and resourcing or, so I'm wondering if you could either talk, if you could talk about this dynamic between the two and then anything else you'd want to say about how you're working with this in, in your most recent book. Well, that's great. So I think, as you say, if the bird of practice, so we're talking here about practice, how do we engage our experiences? How do we relate to our mind? Uh, what do we do when we're, when we get irked yeah. <laughs> lately? Yeah, yeah irked. <laughs> I've been uh, focusing on developing, uh, you know, to become unirkable, right? And I <laughs> How's that going? say that yeah, I say that with tongue in cheek, and it's a work in progress. Trust me, yeah. my wife will tell you too. But that said, if you're working on becoming unirkable or developing unirkability, let's say, then when you do get irked, when you get annoyed or exasperated or frustrated or miffed, you actually welcome it. Weirdly, mm-hmm. you welcome it as an opportunity to become less irkable the next time around. Right. Yeah. So yeah. let's suppose you got irked by something. What do you do? Well, the bird of practice. So how do you practice with being irked? And I find one of the most helpful questions for people, you have to be careful about it because it kind of puts them on the spot, is whether it's a client or a friend or your child, anyone, uh, when they tell you what's happening and how they're mad about this or they feel hurt about that, after just listening, hopefully with some empathy and support, you pause and essentially say, so, wow, yeah, sucks. And how are you practicing with that, right? Mm. What are you going to do about that? How are you going to cope with it outside of yourself? And how are you going to practice with it inside of yourself? Really beautiful question. <laughs> That's an edgy. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like that could go a bunch of different ways in the moment yeah. where uh, I thought you were going to say, what can I do about that? Or what? And I really I appreciate there's, you could also go a different way and say, you know, how are you practicing with it? Yeah. Um, Especially as a client. Let's say, you know, the neighbor's car alarm keeps going off all the time at night and you're trying to sleep. Well, how how can you cope with that in a sense of what can you do in the outer world? Can you talk to your neighbor? Is would it get explosive if nonviolent if you talk to your neighbor, depending on the neighbor and the neighborhood? Mm-hmm. Uh, or is it something that you could negotiate with them, et cetera? How are you going to cope with it externally? And then internally, how are you practicing with it, including the limitations? of what you can actually cope with. Right. And this is the fundamental territory of being resourceful, claiming agency inside your own mind, and self-reliance. Yeah. So without which, you know, honestly, people are kind of just dead in the water. 
sizzling on the hot plate. Well, you know, I'm not coping with the hot plate I'm sizzling on, nor am I practicing with how much it hurts and how angry it makes me. Hmm. Well, that's not good. Now, we can understand how learned helplessness, especially with a trauma history, would lead to that lack of coping and lack of practicing. And we have to be incredibly careful, I think, as you know better than I, because you really work in this space. We have to be very careful that it, we're not shaming people uh, in our well-intended efforts to help them to draw them into more effective coping or more effective practicing. That said, if there's going to be any significant improvement for the better, we have to improve coping and practicing mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. in the real world. So mm -hmm. then the question becomes how to do that skillfully. So in terms of um, practicing, I think the great bird of practice, if you will, is two wings. First and foremost, we be with what's there. We recognize it oh, wow, I'm really mad that my neighbor's car alarm has gone off again. We, we feel it. Uh, we learn how to feel our feelings. I had to really learn how to be with my experience in my 20s because I had totally shut it down because it hurt too much. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to be with it. We, we hopefully do it with mindfulness, with self-compassion, with investigation, with acceptance, with curiosity. We disentangle the knotted threads of this particular uh, aspect of the tapestry of our own mind, our own moment of experience. Okay, fine. Maybe it changes in the process, but we're not, not actively trying to nudge it. That's being with what's there. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the primary practice because sometimes it's all we can do to ride out the storm. Mm -hmm. And as practice matures, uh, more and more we're just being with, just being with the moment. That's all we're, that's really what we're doing here. That said, it's not the entirety of practice. There we also need to work with it. And the Buddha summarized that in two aspects under the heading of wise effort. Essentially, we prevent or reduce or end what's quote-unquote negative, what is painful or harmful for ourselves and others. And as the other aspect of wise effort, we create, protect, or increase that which is beneficial for ourselves and others, that which is enjoyable and and virtuous for ourselves and others. So being with and working with. I find that's a really useful framework and to, it's helpful to ask people, what are they strong at and what would be worth developing? Absolutely. Uh, my own opinion is that uh, there's been an emphasis in the psycho-spiritual space, both in clinical psychology and psychotherapy, as well as in people interested in consciousness and, and and awareness and meditation and so forth. There's been a strong emphasis in the last 10, 15 years on the being with wing of the great bird of practice. Mm. And that's good, but there's been developing, in my view, a kind of dogmatic ideology that's against working with the mind. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. there are pitfalls in working with the mind. You can get caught up, as I have, in a fix-it mentality or in being goal-oriented or comparing yourself to others. All right. There are also pitfalls in just being with the mind. People Absolutely. who have just are way too passive and inert, you know, they can witness uh, forever, but they're as neurotic as they've ever been, right? Mm -hmm. And as hard to work with, live with, or sleep with. So <laughs> we need to work with the mind, not just be with it. And as we work with the mind and cultivate resources, which is a particular emphasis of mind, as we grow flowers, as it were, in the garden of the mind, which means lasting changes in the brain of neural structure and function. As we work with the mind, we cultivate resources like mindfulness 
or distress tolerance or the executive regulation of attention or an internalized felt sense of being cared about by others, uh, having inner allies. We develop resources like that um, that enable us to be with our experience in deeper and more productive ways. Absolutely. Which that feels like uh, one of the ways I've actually heard Tara Brock, a Buddhist teacher, talk about what I hear you naming is that it's so essential to be with. And then at some moments when it comes to trauma, I mean, Tara having had so much training in trauma, she says, and then there is a threshold when the move is to really actively work with. And in my experience with your work, there's you're naming a lot of different resourcing practices that people can have in their toolkit. Again, not as an avoidance tactic, uh, right. but as a way of, of skillful means in that way. So I'd love, I mean, that feels like the ongoing conversation we'll be having forever about the, the two wings of that bird. It's, it's so dynamic, always changing about mm-hmm. what's, what's needed um, in this moment. Yeah, if you look at, just to use both Buddhism and clinical psychology as examples, both of them, including Buddhism, mainly emphasize working with the mind. Mm-hmm. The Buddha did. Mm. There are, if you look at the Eightfold Path, uh, almost all the elements in it involve the development or cultivation, the working with beneficial factors in our stream of consciousness, and the reduction, the abandonment, the turning away from hindrances, afflictions, poisons, colorful language sometimes, and other factors that hurt and harm us and others. Why the cultivation of wise view, the cultivation of wise intentions, the cultivation of wise speech, livelihood, action, and ethics co- too. I feel like too inside of that. Oh, deep there, you know, yeah. in wise action, speech, and livelihood, especially right, right, exactly right. right. The cultivation of virtue as well as concentration, the, the capacity to really, really steady your mind, in, in, including in deep absorption states, and the cultivation of insight yeah. and wisdom over time. These are forms of deliberate, engaged practice. I think there's a kind of naive, strange, dogmatic assumption that if we just be with what's there, somehow all these other fruits will emerge. Well, maybe they will if you're in a monastery meditating 14 hours a day. Mm -hmm. Maybe. But in the real world, particularly grounded in the body, people use the language of embodiment, except they routinely don't want to really face the implications of being embodied, Mm -hmm. which is that it's a physical body. It's designed because of its negativity bias, which you know about, to hold on to uh, to negative tendencies, problematic tendencies that hurt and harm us and and others. Also, to develop, to acquire trait self-compassion, trait wisdom, trait virtue, trait concentration, to acquire and develop these, you've got to change a physical system, you know, the body in general and the brain in particular. Mm -hmm. So these are, these are, it takes active engagement to to produce these results, yeah. to put it in a really direct kind of way. Yeah. And uh, in the broad territory of clinical psychology, uh, we have so many tools for helping people to, uh, after they've been with their material, right, and they've come to know it in some way, either in the moment or to know themselves more generally, all right, what are you going to do about it? Right? You, you're very addictive, let's say. Right. You really want to drink every day and you know how bad that is for you. What do you want to do about that? Well, 
there's more to do there than just witness desire arising. Right. Uh, right? right. So I'm ranting here a little bit, but I just think I don't get it. I don't get why people turn away from being resourceful and active yes. uh, in their practice yeah. and their coping, uh, you know, keeping a watchful eye on the pitfalls and so forth. But why not? And yeah, go on. Well, that, I mean, that feels like a, maybe it's our, the next conversation, I think that would be a fascinating conversation from many different angles, historical and otherwise, to say, well, what happened in the in the 60s and 70s with the proliferation of mindfulness through a certain stream here mm-hmm. um, inside of North America and in the West, that, it, that there was, appreciate you reminding both me and listeners about the way that actually inside of Buddhist teachings, it is a lot about working with. And yet I can tell you with, two things that did that. Sure, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> Well, one is uh, a lot of the teachers who brought uh, the Theravadan tradition, uh, which then has been sort of secularized into the mindfulness tradition mainly, uh, uh, and I'm very grounded in that tradition and I have tremendous respect for these people, but many of these people were trained in environments in which their monastic teachers highly, highly emphasized, just be with it, just Mm -hmm. be with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's unpleasant, be with the unpleasant. It's pleasant, be with the pleasant. Just be with it, just be with it. Mm-hmm. And many of those um, Theravadan teachers, wonderful, phenomenal people, hyper-emphasized a kind of, frankly, inert, receptive, passive, choiceless form of awareness as a meditative technique, which then got valorized, then got uh, privileged as a kind of total approach to practice, if not a way of life. That That's one thing that happened. Another thing that happened is that Zen came to America, and Zen in the development of Buddhism is hyper-focused on uh, particularly its Soto stream, which also I've gained a lot from and I highly respect, just sitting, just being, mm-hmm. just being. And um, that's a very powerful meditative stance. And as practice matures, as it was matured in these Zen masters and Roshis, uh, the fulfillment of practice really is just be with it, just being, just Mm -hmm. being, just being. But along the way, they left out most of the Eightfold Path. And and MBSR, for example, is very informed by both of those perspectives, including the more Zen orientation around just sitting, just be with it. And so to me, those are two factors historically that have led to this conclusion. And then the non-dual stuff has come in uh, to add a third kind of factor here. And again, tremendous value there. Jean Klein, Adyashanti, Vedanta, that kind of orientation of just drop in, just Mm -hmm. drop in to the radical truth of non-duality, that consciousness is itself non-dual and consciousness is entwined with the universe in a non-dual way and personal consciousness and the universe altogether is entwined in a non-dual way with the transcendental ground Mm. just drop in yeah go for it (laughs) and like all right if you could do that great and maybe you can do that right for a few seconds in a row can you do it for minutes hours and days in a row especially if you're challenged well those teachers can after 30 years of practice or some extraordinary and very unusual Eckhart Tolle level of just 
transformative realization, kind of out of the blue. Great. Yeah. All right. So I'm ranting here. I hope I'm. I I, I hope I'm offending some people because if I am, <laughs> you know, I'm doing my job here. But anyway. But I mean it more generally. And that said, to me, it's like, hey, let's draw on these methods. But why leave so much else out? Well, I appreciate you naming the three and taking the risk to, to name that because given that you've been so inside of, I mean, I hear you naming that with deep respect and yeah. of what it's offered you and other communities. And you're naming the, the I'd say the field that I came up in around mm. practice and who I valorized. I mean, who I looked to and embodied. And so I had so many, and I continue, but I had so many ideas about what it meant to be a good practitioner. And, yeah. and I was like, where did that come from? And I feel like you're, you're touching on it and it just it continues to ripple and it actually gets back to shame. The way that people can feel ashamed inside of their practice, maybe this would be a place to start landing the plane here, that mm. the, 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 the shame that so many people I meet felt in practice because they were having an experience for many people that I meet around trauma and they felt like, oh, there's such a good, I can't be with it. I can't be with, and that's if that's what's being lifted up and valorized, it leaves people feeling isolated and ashamed. And that's I just appreciate that frame point. that you're naming around it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, to me, there's a underlying humility and respect in this orientation I have. And what I mean by that is respect for the power of pain and the weight of it, the impact, including whether it's through major trauma or the gradual accumulation of a lot of micro trauma mm. or simply the wear and tear of a stressed and burdensome life, right? To really have the humility to respect the weight of that and not to get grandiose or glib about how, how we should deal with it to really appreciate that it's a five alarm fire you know yeah. you don't bring a squirt gun to a five <laughs> right, alarm right, fire yeah. and then idolize the squirt gun and and then uh pat you know and then pillory people who want to bring a fire hose right or at least a garden hose to the five alarm fire right. uh the other aspect of it is to respect the body and I think a lot of people who are very good at self-awareness of the body, you know, they can drop into awareness of body sensations really well. For some strange reason, they really balk at facing the implications of the very concrete physical machinery mm. of this body and its nature, right? They are prepared <laughs> to look at the nature of the physical body as, uh, you know, impermanent, compounded, dependently arising, empty of absolute existence, blah, blah. They're able to recognize shunyata in the body. Well, great. But they don't really go to the next step, which is, well, yeah, this physical body changes for the worse over time in some ways based on things that happen to us. And those changes tend to endure. Mm. And if we want to change this body for the better, if we want to change circuitry in the brain for the better, we need to engage that in a really active way. We need to actually respect the physicality of this body that is the basis of the life that we have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Couldn't be more essential around trauma as well. That deep, in whatever role we're in, that deep respect for our physiology is just, it's essential. It's essential for yeah, respect and integrity. That's right. Well, is there um, anything that you'd, again, we could go on here, I you know, for for a long time. Oh, it's fun. Yeah, it's, really, it's, it's good to talk to you. And, anything, and usual 
by the way, topics that we're exploring. Yeah, it's great. It's yeah. fresh. Um, anything that you'd, you'd also like to, I don't know, any closing thoughts you'd like to let me, your listeners know? And, and also I'd love to talk about um, ways folks can, can reach you these days if they want to go deeper in your work. Yeah. Well, I would encourage people, uh, if they like, to check out my book, Neurodharma, because it's sort of the background context for what we explored. And uh, inside it are a lot of very practical, experiential things that people can engage. It's not a theory book. It's a mm. practice book. And it really is about developing these seven qualities of steadiness, lovingness, equanimity, um, feeling whole, in the present, connected to everything, with a growing intuition of timelessness, of, of ultimate unconditioned ground you know, in which everything occurs. So that's what that book's about. I encourage that. And also, uh, I've turned it into an online program uh, based on our 10-day retreat I taught about this material. So it's very well organized. It's well edited. There's a lot of bonuses there. And people can learn more about the book, and they can learn more about that online program at my website, rickhanson.net. That's great. A year ago, when I was uh, traveling and you had come th uh, through, you were earlier, you were, you were teaching and I was doing a venue and was talking to the organizer and we're talking about your work and really the breadth of your work and um, how practical it is. I was talking about negativity bias and how that was showing up for me. And, and this is someone who had worked with you a lot and, and um, we're talking about how practical it was. And she said, well, you know why that is? I said, no. And she said, it's because he's worked his butt off over <laughs> over decades that it's not just a highfalutin uh framework just throwing it up like it actually came from a place of really hard practice so just want to respect all the work mm, that you've put you. in to um, be able to articulate uh, this pieces around working with being with and just for the offer of um, of your work so mm -hmm. encourage people to go and, and check out the work and um thanks again for being here rick really it's always just a pleasure to get to drop in with you this is a deep, deep dive, David, and I welcome a chance to do this again with you. Yeah, me too. All right, take care. Bye-bye. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Rick for joining us. If you have any requests of people that you'd like us to speak to or topics that you'd like us to cover, please reach out at support at davidtrelevin.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.